1: That is not the drug problem. That is, in fact, the drug policy problem. I speak tonight for the
3: dignity Dignity of man.
0: Ah, yes, the dignity of man. Oftentimes there are wars. Have you noticed? Is it still 1815? Well, the big powers are still trying to steer small nations to create their own version of peace in 1850 and that was the congress of vienna 200 years ago and how well did that work out many tens of millions died and lost limbs in countless wars in the 19th and 20th century and now 200 years later peace remains extremely elusive aside from the well-known wars in afghanistan iraq ukraine israel palestine There are independence wars in Chechnya and other former Soviet republics, brutal civil wars in Yemen, Syria, Somalia, Egypt, Libya, Tunisia, Mali, Sudan, Nigeria, Congo, Pakistan. It goes on and on. There's something like 65 wars going on now. It all seems to be spinning out of control with no court or parliamentary institution capable of doing anything about it at all. Can small countries resolve differences through diplomacy and other nonviolent initiatives or must great powers intercede? And if they do, what are the chances for success? A recent Keeping Democracy Alive looked at why the American government has so steadfastly and adamantly refused to learn the lessons of Vietnam and the disastrous results of that chosen blindness to history. Today, we're going to look for lessons from much farther back, 200 years ago, actually. Very pleased to have with us Mark Jarrett, author of The Congress of Vienna and Its Legacy. And not only do I understand he was a high school friend of Ben Cohen and uh, Jerry whose last name I forget, of Ben and Jerry's. Greenfield. Jerry Greenfield, uh, yes, of Ben and Jerry's. Uh, he's also He was also speaker at a recent conference at the European Institute of Columbia University on the Congress of Vienna, 1814 to 1815, making peace after global war. He's written an interesting article about something I'd heard of but frankly knew nothing, that Congress of Vienna 200 years ago there are important lessons from that event, which he says are applicable to the challenges of 2015. Jarrett argues in the article that the Congress of Vienna uh, statesmen left a legacy of solid accomplishments, many of which still influence us today, some of which we have chosen not to learn. Okay, thanks for being with us, Mark Jarrett. What was the Congress of Vienna? How did it come about? What was the context in which it occurred?
2: Well, I, uh, first of all, thank you for having me as a guest. I'm greatly flattered, of course. Um, and you you start with a good question because before we look at the lessons of these things, the fact is, the unfortunate fact is that most Americans and probably most of your listeners don't know too much about the Congress of Vienna. So, um, we'll, what we'll do, perhaps, is we'll go back to a common point of origin, which would be the American Revolution, and. Of course, all Americans have to study the American Revolution, and as as you all know, the world was very different at the time of the American Revolution than today. Europe was organized into kingdoms and empires and also smaller states, and public opinion was not as important to these monarchs as it is today. Nationalism scarcely existed. European elites were more cosmopolitan than today. Well, the spirit of the American Revolution, with the idea of popular sovereignty, spread to Europe, and in 1789, the French Revolution took place, and the divine right of kings was questioned in Europe itself, in Europe's greatest, most powerful monarchy at the time, and a constitutional monarchy was set up. The king then was executed in 1793, and a revolutionary republic was set up, and all the other states of Europe kind of... Uh, I wouldn't say declared war, but anyway, ended up in war with France. And during that time, by 1794, the French were being besieged on all sides, and the revolution uh, devolved into uh, the reign of terror. Yes, And this is a kind of immediate background to the Congress of Vienna, in a sense, because uh, a general emerged in France, Napoleon, who was able to sort of defeat the foreign powers and restore order to France in 18. 18- By 1799, he had made himself dictator for life. By 1804, he crowned himself emperor. But the wars continued, and Napoleon was able to conquer half of Europe and reorganize it under his own scepter and his brothers. He put his brother on, made his brother king of Spain. He made his other brother king of Westphalia. He put his brother-in-law on the throne of Naples in southern Italy. So the European powers could, the other powers were afraid of France, of course, and this Mm. huge exercise of hegemony by the French over most of Europe. But they couldn't ally and organize to fight him at the same time. In 1812, he invaded Russia with 500,000 men. He made a huge mistake, as Hitler did later, and he lost those troops. He had to scurry back to France to prevent a coup d'etat. And the Russians decided, after defeating Napoleon in Russia, that they would turn the battle back into Europe, so they invaded Germany. They allied with the Prussians. The Austrians wavered and eventually joined the alliance. The British were allied, and finally, in 1814, they defeated Napoleon. They restored the old, friend, the, the the brother of the king who had been executed in 1793, and they brought France back to its older frontiers. But the and they signed a treaty. May 1814, the Peace of Paris. But although they had decided on the limits of France, there was this big question. All these territories that Napoleon had occupied, what was going to happen with northern Italy? What was going to happen with the German states? What was going to happen, especially to Poland, which had been divided up by the powers in the 18th century, and Napoleon had started to restore? He created something called the Duchy of Warsaw. What was going to happen there? Uh, what was going to happen with the navigation of the Rhine, what was going to happen with the slave trade, what was going to happen with the rights of Jews in Germany. So these were all issues that had not been resolved by the Peace Treaty in May 1814, and the powers did something very innovative. They issued a public invitation to every power and everybody, even what today we would call NGOs, smaller groups, smaller states, to come to Vienna in the fall to negotiate the final treaty. And that was the Congress of Vienna. The Habsburgs, the emperors of Austria, were trying to show off that they uh, were still powerful after all these years of war. So they invited five five kings, two emperors were present. They, in fact, uh, darned as guests of the emperor for almost a year every night. They had huge feasts. They had special events. They had a medieval joust in uh, the Spanish writing school of today. They had a huge slave ride out to, uh, out to the summer palace of the Habsburg Emperor. So they had all these events, and meanwhile, they were deciding how to settle the rest of the frontiers of Europe. And well, although the great powers had invited these other smaller, lesser states and the booksellers of Germany sent representatives, as I said, the Jews of Germany sent representatives, the uh, uh, different monarchs who had competing claims, sent representatives, the King of Denmark was there, etc So but the great powers really wanted to keep these issues in their own hands. They uh-huh. had really hoped to solve everything before everybody came. But they, they had hoped to decide everything before everybody came. What they really wanted was for these other powers to rubber stamp the agreement. And that goes back a little bit to why it last you know, why it might have lasted so long because You have the involvement, the engagement of everybody in Europe. So in that sense, the idea here was during the French Revolution and Napoleon, these borders were changing back and forth, back and forth, something never seen before. So what they wanted to do was get everybody together and kind of stamp the thing and say, This is what the frontiers of Europe are going to be. These are the agreements that we're going to have. But as I say, the great powers themselves did not resolve the central issue, which was Central Europe. And the Tsar had a plan. He was very good. Uh, Poland had been divided up in the 18th century, but one of the most powerful nobles in Poland had been sent to the court of Catherine the Great, kind of as protection, because his family, the Czartoryski family, wanted to hold on to their lands. So uh, their son, uh, Prince uh, Adam Yezhe Czartoryski, was sent to St. St. Petersburg and grew up with the Tsar. So they were best friends. And when the Tsar came to the throne, the first thing he did was appoint this Polish prince as his foreign minister, which is, which from today's standpoint might seem strange, but as I said, this was an age before nationalism. Yeah. The Tsar was very liberal. He had been brought up in the Enlightenment. His grandmother, Catherine the Great, had made sure he was tutored by a, uh, a Swiss Enlightenment character. So it's very funny, because this is the most conservative, repressive regime in Europe. There's no doubt about it. At the same time, the ruler was the most progressive. So it's really an example of enlightened despotism. (laughs) So the Tsar had this plan, which he hatched with Czartoryski, which was that Poland was going to become an independent kingdom again. But although it would become its own kingdom with its own constitution in Polish, its own national assembly, uh, at the same time, the Tsar of Russia would become the king of Poland. Well, of course, that was the most that the czar really could do at the time, because the, the Russian nobles, the Russian generals were all against this. so were the Prussians, uh, generals, and so on. Uh, but the Austrians and the British and the Prussian generals, they all saw this quite differently. They saw this as pure expansion, pure conquest, pure aggression, that the Russians were going to expand into Poland. And, this beca- and the, the, the Tsar had a second part of this plan, and that was that he was gonna give the state of Saxony, the king of Saxony had stayed loyal to Napoleon all through the fighting, even am, even up until the Battle of Leipzig in eighteen thirteen. So he so the Tsar said, Let's just give Saxony to Prussia, which was a smaller German state. And Prussia was gonna give this territory to Poland that the Tsar was gonna take, and Prussia was gonna get Saxony. Well, wow, the Austrians and the English couldn't stand this plan. They said it's going to weaken Prussian security, Prussia will be vulnerable to attack from Russia, Austria will be vulnerable from attack from Prussia and Austria and Russia rather. The French were against the plan so there was a, a huge row and and they really couldn't agree on what to do and meanwhile the, the small par, par, powers were all chumping at the bit. When are we going to start the sessions? So they never actually did have the sessions that they had planned to have. Mm-hmm. And the big powers, Russia, Prussia, Britain, and Austria, tried to negotiate this. They couldn't really come to an agreement completely. And in the end, they invited the the Austrians and the British invited the French in, which maybe tipped the balance. I mean, this is something historians argue. Uh, But the long and the short of it is that the Tsar did get most of what he wanted, but he made some last-minute concessions. And I've written an article uh, in Britain in a journal called History Today, and of course it's in my book, too, talking about this incident and maybe comparing it in some ways to what's going on in the Crimea and the Ukraine. Mm -hmm. Uh, If we look at it from the standpoint of what Joseph Nye has written about hard power and soft power, he calls hard power military power and economic power and soft power everything else, we could say that at the Congress of Vienna, the powers... The powers that opposed the Tsar simply didn't have the hard power resources needed to prevent him. In fact, the Tsar teased Kasselry at the conference. He said, uh, You can't do anything. I'm already occupying the region, which was true. Russian troops were in Poland, and, and the British weren't going to intervene and send their own troops there. So, but the Tsar saw himself as the savior of Europe, and he was a Europeanist, as I said, and liberal. Mm-hmm. So, in the end, he, he at, the, at the final stages of the conference, he suddenly made, uh, he was influenced by soft power, by persuasion, by the argument that he wouldn't have the support of Europe if he didn't make concessions. And at the last minute, he did make quite a few concessions and gave up some of the territory. And Krakow actually became an independent republic and so on. So, that's kind of interesting from the standpoint of what's going on today.
0: Well, I think. There's, there's so much of, of what's going on that's today. The,
2: that's what happened. The powers reached a bunch of compromises, and they basically, uh, they basically set up spheres of influence. Austria was given northern Italy. France was kept to where it had been in kind of 1793. Uh, Britain had colonies overseas, and its special interest was the Netherlands, which was strengthened. And Russia, as I said, made gains in Poland and also kept Finland, which it had taken during the Napoleonic Wars. And then in the middle of Europe, which was the weak point, which is where all the countries had kind of expanded, they sort of carved that up and stabilized it by strengthening some of these countries. So why is it that it was so successful? That's that's the question. What was the secret to their success?
0: Well, I definitely want to... Inquire about that. And for those who just tuned in to Keeping Democracy Alive, Bert Cohen here, our guest is Mark Jarrett, author of The Congress of Vienna and its Legacy. And as he's describing uh, history in the early 19th century, it sounds so familiar to what's going on today. And and you look at, for example, the Republicans in these currently United States who are just talking about hard power, that the only uh, way to deal, say, with Iran and the possibility of, of developing nuclear weapons is through hard power. That's what Netanyahu is saying, just hard power. But as you say, sometimes soft power has the capability of actually working. And, uh, you know, just just leaving out the, the soft power seems to be a, a kind of a mistake. And, you know, this Congress of Vienna obviously occurred in Vienna, which was... At the time, I believe the capital of the large Austrian Empire it was, and and they threw a heck of a party. For, it sounds like for many many months. I mean, just w- why was it so lavish? What, they, there must have been some th- thought behind making it so lavish. What was in it for? Uh, well,
2: the, the interesting thing is that the plans for the party element actually uh, preceded the plans for the negotiation. Because I said. The, the powers were already meeting in Paris, and then they moved to London, and they really thought they were going to wrap up the basic contours of the agreement before. But meanwhile, in Vienna, they were planning this big party. They had been fighting for 25 years. Uh-huh. And this was a kind of victory of the monarchical principle of the Catholic Church, uh-huh. of, the, uh, uh, of the nobles, over the sp- over the sp- over some of the changes of the French Revolution, so they really wanted to celebrate that, and they did. I mean, I saw a list recently. Someone else listed like the biggest ten biggest parties in in history, and I think this was number two. <laughs> was uh, uh, they started arriving in September? the the twenty fifth of September is when the Tsar uh, officially entered the city, and they were there. Uh, they were there until the following June in 1815 so this was almost a year and every as they 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 created thousands of special uniforms for the people who were serving these people they they create they they made something like i think it was 200 special now 170 special imperial carriages they had a system set up that uh the uh, delegates could just order a carriage and it would appear within 20 minutes or something uh. take them to wherever they wanted it was hugely expensive uh,
0: uh, and, and that that money, I, I think, generally, uh, that kind of money isn't just thrown around out of the goodness of their hearts uh, and for fun. What what was in it for for the royals? Would this somehow?
2: Well, I the people who paid for it was okay. Vienna, it's been estimated, increased by one it was at that time it had a wall around the city. It inc- the population increased by one third. That's how many retainers and and special interests were there, one-third, the increase was one-third. They had special taxes uh, that helped to pay for it, Uh which some of the people resented. So some people made a profit, and some people didn't want all these people there. But the the Austrian monarchy, the Habsburg monarchy, the Mm -hmm. Habsburgs were a family that had been uh, a, a very important ruling family for centuries and centuries. Yeah. Uh, they had traditionally been the emperors. The Holy Roman Emperor had traditionally been a Habsburg. Napoleon threatened control of the Holy Roman Empire by the Habsburgs by creating a bunch of Protestant princes. So, the in in 1804, the Austrian Emperor, seeing what would happen, there were there had been no official Austrian em, Emperor in 1804. The the austrians created the austrian empire and then in 18 i think it was 1806 the uh, the holy roman empire was disbanded so the, so it was a new position for them and they were trying to and it was really a question of prestige uh-huh. some people saw the austrians as weaker than say russia or britain in, in and and france during the napoleonic wars so they were trying to hold on to this prestige that they had had for centuries this the as the Habsburg Holy Roman Emperor. So oh, yeah. I th- that may may explain it to some degree.
0: Yeah, so they, they wanted to throw a heck of a good party, and I'm reminded of, uh, oh, the notion of conspicuous consumption uh, that has happened throughout well, pretty much all cultures and all times every now and then to show their power you throw a heck of a good party and people uh
2: people like the party you want to keep I think it's like cheaper it cheaper than troops probably let's you know uh, the the russian yeah, at that time russian army was 800,000 strong and even in 1816 the russian army was 800,000 you know and i think the the austrian army was 300 something thousand so so uh, so they it was a, a, a it was a way i think to to emphasize that they were still a great power,
0: power through parties. That
2: impression on everybody else's minds, and and maybe even though it seems expensive, it might have been cheaper than other things.
0: Well, yeah, we can... cheaper
2: than losing territory, for
0: example. Oh, absolutely, and territory, of course, was the name of the game. And you're right, you know, people these days, you know, largely think these nations that exist throughout Europe have always been that way. Au contraire, you know, this nationalism stuff is is actually relatively recent. And, and, you know, this was all uh, the the shaping of it at this particular time. And you write, and I found this interesting, I've often wondered why Henry Kissinger has been called a Metternich. Well, this is apparently where it comes from, Austria's Prince Metternich. He was one of the big players. Who, Who is he and why is Kissinger often compared to him?
2: Well, uh, there are a couple of reasons. I have, uh, I'll begin with Kissinger and then work my way back to Metternich. Uh, Kissinger wrote his first book when he was a young professor about the Congress of Vienna. Oh, no kidding. In fact, hmm. in 1956, almost 50 years ago, he wrote an article uh, in World Politics, which is a leading journal for international relations, called the Congress of Vienna Reappraisal. And actually, I never got to, which is my own fault. I know I'm a bit long-winded when I'm talking about the Congress of Vienna. It's hard not to be. But uh, he gives his own explanation why it was so successful. And What he says is it established a balance of power. Hmm. And then once this balance of power was kind of accepted, it... um, the, this gave this agreement legitimacy, so people would kind of respect it. And even though nobody was completely happy with it, mm-hmm. they preferred mm-hmm. to keep that agreement rather than to question any parts of it. That's that's kind of what he he writes. Now, so in my book, in dealing with the legacy, I do mention Kissinger um, specifically. Because he did write this book not just about the Congress of Vienna but about the subsequent Congress system which I read about in my right. book as well. Oh yeah. And and to me that's one of the impacts is actually the impact on Kissinger in particular. So I'm gonna read a sentence from my book. Sure. If I may.
0: Yeah, absolutely.
2: All right. These statesmen, that's Cassery and Metternich, were heroes in Kissinger's eyes. In part because they brazenly pursued what they deemed as necessary policies, even in defiance of public opinion.
0: Hmm.
2: And now, here's where I, here's my speculation, my own speculation. This is, historians shouldn't probably do this, but. No, it's so they, much fun. I couldn't resist, because otherwise, oh, yeah. why study history, right? Yeah, okay. Yeah. The study of this period thus led Kissinger to value order and hierarchy in the international system, secrecy, which he still does today, if you look oh, at yeah. his World Order book, secrecy in negotiations. Which, which I think may actually be a good thing, a willingness for better or worse to pursue policies that might be unpopular or misunderstood, the use of trade-offs, and a willingness to cooperate with different states, different types of states. So that's, that's sort of my conclusion there. Uh, and I'm going to just continue for a second to make applications, which I'm sure, Bert, you'll remember some of these. May. Kissinger largely overlooked domestic considerations in favor of what the Germans call Prima der Außenpolitik, the privacy of foreign policy. Perhaps it was his very familiarity with the diplomacy of Castlereagh, Metternich, and Alexander and Talleyrand that caused Kissinger to push for conversion of the bipolar world of the early Cold War into the more flexible, multipolar system. Is it too great a stretch to see Nixon and Kissinger's reaching out to China during the Vietnam War as an echo of the rapprochement of Kasseri and Metternich with France during the Polo-Saxon crisis at the Congress of Vienna? Was American involvement in the overthrow of Salvatore Allende in Chile in 1973 in August to the Austrian overthrow of the revolutionary government of Naples or the French in Spain in the 1820s? Was Kissinger's practice of diplomacy, especially the veil, of, the veil of secrecy that surrounded his talks with the North Vietnamese, inspired by Casiraghi, who, as the foreign minister of a parliamentary state, resorted to secrecy in pursuing unpopular policies in his dealings with continental autocrats? I, I can't really answer those questions. As I say, that's sure. just uh, speculation. And just speculation in the ways in which he might have been influenced. Of course, he's a a living character, and that's why it's not good, perhaps, for historians to start to make speculations like that. But I think some of them still make sense to me as I read that.
0: Well, it's certainly still in play, and it seems like an awful lot, and the reason we're talking about it here on Keeping Democracy Alive, an awful lot that happened then is uh, that set the stage for how the games are played now. And certainly uh, uh, Kissinger and a lot of people saw little Vietnam as part of the big game between the U.S. and the giant monolithic Soviets, which wasn't accurate, but the big powers. And I'm wondering now, you know, how we've somewhat moved away from the great men theory of history, but relying on the great powers right now. You know we have uh there's this Israel and Palestine and uh situation in uh in uh, Ukraine lots of different situations where the great powers it seems kind of need to intercede. do they need to intercede or
2: i have uh, my personal view um but based on the study of the spirit is is that they probably do and of course, I'm in an awkward situation. We were talking before the show. Where we we were almost the same age, and therefore yes. we grew up with the same experiences, which is the war in Vietnam, oh, yeah. which was an unpleasant uh, intervention by the United States, and ultimately we still think an unnecessary one. And uh, yeah. as you say, the, the 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 current battlefields are being ha- are being fought in history too, because some people claim no that was a great idea, it just wasn't carried through. now I think mm-hmm. it was a terrible idea. Yeah. But uh so of course there's always overreaction, there's always applying the wrong lessons from history. So I, I think if we if we tried to apply what was going on from the Congress of Vienna, there there are a couple of quick lessons we could make which are pretty generic. But one is that there is a need to remain engaged. Castlery, who was the representative of the British, felt that it was important for the British to remain active in the diplomacy of the continent that's part of what this congress system that he set up was about it's just the opposite of george washington's farewell address i think the other lesson mm. here is the need for cooperation uh... the the people of the congress of vienna had a very curious thing happen they had been fighting napoleon so they would all got together in the last six months before the congress they were at the camp the military camp kept, kept shifting from town to town. The Tsar was there. The English Foreign Secretary for the first time was out of England on the continent. Metternich was there. The Prussian generals were there. Hardenberg was there. The King of Prussia was there. They were all sitting around. They were all personally at war councils. And this went on for six months before the Congress of Vienna. So they were on, a, they, they, they had a personal contact more than any other leaders I think in the history before or since and i think this also helped develop a certain degree of empathy that is that you know leaders now also meet more than they did uh, in the past yes. and i think that's that's a good thing yes. so there was there was a need to cooperate there was a ne- there's a need to continue negotiations even when things aren't working too well there's this need to remain engaged uh, there's a need to have a realistic assessment of capabilities and that's one of the points that K- kissinger does make in his recent book, and in his own diplomacy, I think, uh, and there's a need to stand firm on certain irreducible minimal demands, and, and that was true at the Congress of Vienna, and I think that's true today. So, yeah. so my view is that the, the the great powers do need to stay engaged, um, that they that they they provide a certain stability. And, in fact, the ambassador to Israel was making just that comparison a couple of years ago. I noticed this in the magazine Foreign Policy in 2012. Michael Oren, the Israeli ambassador to the United Nations, has stated, quote, "...the Congress of Vienna worked. It worked for hundred years. It provided for a framework, a balance of power that worked for Europe until the original ideas behind it were forgotten by subsequent generations." Its principles were abandoned by key players, and the result was World War I. And then he confers that yes. uh, with the Middle East today. He says, he says uh, there was a certain stability that was brought to the region, which has been, fr- which has been fragmented. Here we are almost 100 years after the Sykes-Picot treaty, mm-hmm. treaty of 1916, not a popular treaty, of course. No. And the memories and ideas behind it, too, have started to fade. That's good in some ways, but the consequences is not localized, but region-wide instability. So when the, when the great powers like the United States absent themselves from this kind of situation, we do see rising instability. And, of course, uh, this is a progressive radio network. So this, this brings us to a touchy issue for the congressmen of 1814, 1815, because they have a double legacy, a clear double legacy. They've been fighting against the French Revolution, and they opposed revolution, and they suppressed Revolutions, even revolutions that, looking back, seem pretty moderate. They were just setting up constitutional monarchies in, in in Naples and in Spain, and they got repressed. On the other hand, there's the good legacy: the creation of international institutions. And yes. in some ways, we could discuss this, but in some ways, the even the United Nations Security yes. Council goes back to the Congress system. So they were pretty adept at creating new international institutions and promoting international cooperation and in meeting international challenges and especially when you think about things that go in the background like global warming i mean we need that that spirit that that willingness to fight to cooperate on the other hand they they were anti-democratic there's no question about that They weren't as completely anti-democratic as historians in the early 20th century or late 19th century said, because they had all been grown up, they all grown up in the Enlightenment like the Tsar, and they had all been influenced by Enlightenment principles. They were all for reform to some degree, but they all got scared by the French Revolution and, and got more <laughs> repressive as time went on.
0: Fascinating. We're, we're talking about the... Congress of Vienna 200 years ago with uh, author Mark Jarrett. Uh, Bert Cohen here. It is keeping democracy alive. And I think about, you can see why the the Austrian hosts threw such a big party to to impress the people and keep the power. And I'm reminded that took a very long time. In 1919, about uh, 100 years after that, the Treaty of Versailles at the end of the Great War, known as the First World War, uh, it went on for months and months and months, and it, it it seems like some of the smaller powers, the lesser powers, were kind of left out, and some of them got kind of angry about that. Like, for example, Japan did participate in the Great War, and they felt like they didn't get their due. They didn't get to really sit at the big boys' table. And I wonder, you know, how much of, of the uh, leaving it in the hands of the great powers may have Possibly exacerbated it and, and made things kind of worse uh, when it came around to the first world war and led to more and more uh, horrible bloodshed.
2: Well, the great powers tend to look uh, for stability, but for themselves, they don't really help the small powers in the past. They will, uh, they don't necessarily go out of their way to hurt the small powers, but they just see the small powers as tools, as 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 uh, pawns on the chessboard in in. Relations between the great powers. I, I do want to say something else about the Paris Peace Conference because a different comparison is often made. Okay. One of the leading, probably the leading English historian of the Congress of Vienna and of Lord Castlereagh, who was the British Foreign Secretary who went there, is someone named Charles Kingsley Webster, who was at Cambridge and then at the London School of Economics, where I actually studied. And this is before I was uh, born, though he's older. And he he was a young man right before the Paris Peace Conference, and he was commissioned to write a historical study of the Congress of Vienna to see what lessons, uh, what mistakes they had made to avoid at the Paris Peace Conference. So he said that the mistake that they had made was to invite France, because once France got there, as, as I was explaining before, the, the great powers, the Allied victors, could not decide among themselves, and then... One group, the the British and Austrians, kind of invited the French in to tip the balance, and the French also stirred up all kinds of troubles with the smaller powers and so on too. So they said, "Well, that's a mistake. Let's not invite the defeated power." So Germany was not at the Paris Peace Conference. The whole con, the whole uh, treaty was ne- was negotiated in committees with the smaller powers, as you say, but mainly by the big right. uh, four mm-hmm. and. Um, and the result was kind of a disaster because it was too punitive against Germany. Yeah. So, so people say, well, they made the wrong mistake. The Congress of Vienna was actually better because it was not a punitive peace, and Versailles was a punitive peace. So that's that's the comparison that's all, that's often made. But in both cases, the smaller powers did have were called upon to make sacrifices by the bigger powers in order to establish this balance of power between the bigger powers.
0: Well, I wonder about again the the great powers, how necessary they really are. I mean, a lot of uh, smaller countries chafe at that and, and resent that and resent having, you know, the shots called by the great powers and sort of imposed from the top down. Have we dealt with that problem now? I,
2: it, it doesn't seem like... Well, I I, I agree with you. I mean... But I but the answer is in simple. I mean right, one of, of the issues that remains I, I've written I've written a few articles with this thing coming up. I and mean, one, one of the issues one of the things is what are the enduring issues and I always list at the top mm. uh, what should be the role of the great powers towards each other in other states? Are they entitled to a special role with special privileges? Right. The UN and the League of Nations before that and the Congress system before that were all based on the idea that they do have a special role. Now you could say, Well wait a second, every country's in the UN. Yes, but right. the Security Council, the members of the Security Council, are mm-hmm. the ones who enforce the U.N. decisions, and in a way, it's like the Congress of Vienna. You, they called everybody in, and they were all in Vienna having a great time, and they did have contact with these leaders, because mm-hmm. they were all hanging out in the city for months and months, so they got an opportunity to express their views, but they didn't have any power. Right. And Maybe you might say the same. We have a General Assembly that can express views and pass resolutions and so on, but in the end, it's the Security Council that calls it tune. so it's not that different. Now, can you structure a world order that's different? Yeah. <laughs> uh, you know, this is not something we're going to be able to discuss with the Congress of Vienna in in twenty minutes. I mean, that's true. Uh, certainly people are thinking about this. There's a there's a professor at Columbia, Mark Matsauer. He's written a book, Governing the World. There's Henry Kissinger. He's just published his his book, World Order. Mm. The idea of a world order is in the air because we're clearly clearly in an age of transition yes, uh, from. The uh, bipolarity that we knew as, as uh, yeah. in our younger days to the unipolar moment to a true multipolarity and some of the problems that that raises. There's no. See, the United States may still be the most powerful nation, but it can't control events everywhere in the globe, and we now recognize that. So, so we're going to have to cooperate more. We're going to have to pick our battles more carefully. Yeah.
0: Uh, <laughs> that would be nice. So, Well, there have been many attempts over the years for what some people have called citizen diplomacy. In the midst of of the Great War, when the the leaders sort of, uh, as a recent book said, sleepwalked into the situation, Uh, 2,000 women from many different countries met uh, to help craft a peace. It didn't work. I wonder about citizen diplomacy. Well, it's
2: funny that you mentioned that because that, you could say, goes back to the Congress of Vienna, too. At the Congress of Vienna, a private individual, Sir Sidney Smith, had a picnic. It was one of the first fundraisers. They did a <laughs> private picnic. It was not sponsored by any government. And it was to raise money for ransom for victims of the Barbary pirates. And and there were other examples of humanitarian intervention that could be traced back to the Congress of Vienna. As I said, the most important probably being the rights of German Jews that were questioned by Frankfurt and the towns. and also uh, they issued a declaration against the slave trade, uh, and they were trying to... The British were trying to get stronger measures against the slave trade, but they were unsuccessful. So... uh, so you had some, some some idea of citizenship diplomacy back then, because there were other private groups, I said, that went to the Congress of Vienna, too. So,
0: And I, I wonder, you know, as you say, in the Congress of Vienna, it was really the big powers that, you know, were in the driver's seat. And, and now we have, uh, well, there was the failed League of Nations, and now we have the United Nations. And, you know, it's like uh, the, the smaller powers would like to have some say, but they, they don't seem to is there any do you think uh, uh that there could be more effective place for the smaller powers in the united nations but i i can't imagine that happening with the power that the big states have i, I, I don't want to yeah. give it up
2: well we're, uh, we're both progressives but but, we're, but we but we also has to be pra- pragmatic
0: yeah, that's a good thing to do. we, we yeah. could
2: uh and that's what i say about the double legacy um we could go back to the dreams of philosophers for perpetual peace mm-hmm. and most of these happen after major wars i mean one of the most important was uh after the french wars of religion uh solely and then later after the uh war of spanish succession in 1713 somebody named abbé sapeye published a a plan for the confederation of Europe, and then the famous philosopher Immanuel Kant in 1795, at the middle of the French Revolution, published a plan also for uh, a kind of confederation of Europe, and these ideas influenced the czar in particular, and influenced the men at the Congress of Vienna. So what they did was this. I, and again, I really apologize to your listeners because I I just seem to wander around. I'm not. No,
0: it's great fun, in my opinion.
2: But. And try to answer your question. So, so after they had settled most of these issues, Napoleon suddenly came back. He had been exiled to Elba, and he was unhappy there. So he escaped from Elba. He landed in the south of France near Antibes. He marched up. He avoided the uh, royalist areas of Provence. He marched through the mountains, and on March twentieth, eighteen fifteen. So that's two hundred years ago. He arrived in the Tuileries Palace in Paris. Not a single bullet had been fired in defense of King Louis XVIII, the restored king, who fled to what was then the Netherlands, today Belgium. He ended up in the town of Ghent uh-huh. in exile. So Napoleon was back there, and the Allies were confronted with a situation. What are we going to do? Napoleon tried to sort of. Approach each of them on an individual basis. He wrote a letter to the Austrian Emperor because he was married to his daughter. He said, Oh, I'm your son in law. I'm going to be a good boy from now on. He wrote to the Russian Tsar. I'm, you know, he tried to get everybody to agree to his return and they. Put a solid front. So that's why I say, in some situations, the Allies were very firm, and maybe we have to be firm in some situations too. They were not going to put up with Napoleon. They didn't trust them. So they gathered. They turned all their troops around. They were still meeting at Naples, in Vienna. They turned all their troops around, and of course, the British and the Dutch and the Prussians were the first to fight him and defeat him at Waterloo in June, eighteen fifteen. So now they had to. They were still. So now they uh, met again in Paris, and they said, well, you know, we just did this Congress of Vienna, and we, had all, we thought we had peace, and look what happened. Yeah. It wasn't strong enough. So they they did certain things to France. They reduced the frontiers a little. They occupied France for three years with their troops. They, the French had not been forced, as comparing the treaty, the Congress of Vienna and the Paris Peace Conference, the French had not even been forced in 1814 to return the artworks that they had looted from Italy and the Netherlands. In Germany, so now they made them return them. But the most important thing is that they said we need to have an alliance. They signed a new alliance, November 1815, the Quadruple Alliance, and they said we're going to have periodic meetings of the heads of uh-huh. state, mm-hmm. not simply ambassadors. The foreign ministers and the kings and emperors are going to meet periodically. And the purpose of these periodic meetings was kind of to supervise. What was going on in Europe? They had the first one in 1818, the Congress of aix chapelle And then revolution broke out, as I said, in Naples. So they had another in 1820 at Trapau. Then they had another in a town that was then called Leibach, uh, in 1821. And the last was in 1822 at Verona. And then the system kind of fell apart. So the idea here was that the heads of state were yeah. going to meet face to face, decide all the issues among themselves. So this is really great power supervision of the rest of the world. And then kind of dictate to the other smaller states what they were going to do, right and it, it, does,
0: it seems like one thing that was really new about this and continues to this day is that when the heads of state have a little actual skin in the game, it's more important because maybe they, that, that really got its start in the Congress of Vienna, I believe
2: well it's interesting. you know you mentioned the conference at Colombia. we did have some diplomats, and one of them was a very uh, nice. Uh, Um, gentleman, Antonio Patriota, who's the Brazilian ambassador to the United Nations and a former foreign minister of Brazil, and he gave a presentation, and he said that the presidents of the different Latin American countries have now started a practice of meeting face-to-face periodically, and that that has been very successful. And then if you think of the Minsk agreement, the Minsk agreement uh, just a couple of months ago for the Ukraine was when Mm -hmm. Francois Hollande, Angela Mark... Oh, yeah. and uh, and uh, the uh, Putin and and uh, yeah, met together individually. Nobody else there, face to face, and and that's kind of what created the ceasefire in the Ukraine. So that type of diplomacy still works. But there's there's an interesting sequel to this Congress system. It collapsed by 1822, in 19 uh in 1918 and 1919 when mm-hmm. they were negotiating the Paris Peace Conference and the League of Nations mm-hmm. uh president wilson wanted this league of nations but he didn't have great details as to how it would be structured the people who supplied that organization were the british and the british had a couple of reports and what they looked back to was the congress system in fact the first proposal was that only the great powers would would be would constitute the League of Nations and they would have periodic meetings, which is exactly what the Congress system was. In the end they said, Well we'll have a twofold system. We'll have the great powers meet in something called the Executive Council and then we'll have all the other powers meet uh as a, as a kind of assembly. Uh-huh. And of course and at Dumbarton Oaks, they changed the name of all these things, and they said the League of Nations has been very unsuccessful, so they started the United Nations. But, but this was largely changing a lot of names, and the Executive Council of the League of Nations, which was really the Congress system, became the Security Council. And if you think of it, the Congress system were the Allied powers, the victors of the Napoleonic Wars, Prussia, Austria, Russia, Britain. And then later in 1818, they allowed France to come in. Now, if we look at the permanent members of the Security Council, we've got the victors of World War II. China, yes, yes. Russia, United States, Britain, and France. So, it is really the the Security Council, the permanent members of the Security Council, the P five. That is the Congress system, in yeah. my view, at least.
0: Interesting, and it. Hello. Yeah, interesting, and it doesn't always seem to work. And I wonder, bringing us up right now. We have this little problem called ISIS, and that seems to have been a direct result of the U.S. going into Iraq and making some dumb mistakes, like de- you know destroying the the Iraqi army that had been there, and now ISIS is terribly out of control, and they're you know obviously horrible butchers there, and the the great powers do seem to be involved very much because we do have a stake in this in this particular territory there is after all some a little bit of petroleum there i wonder what you have any uh, prospects for how the great powers might successfully deal with isis or is it a mistake to leave out the locals which is part of the problem why isis came into being i believe what do you think mark
2: well again i'm uh you know i'm an historian not a political scientist uh which is not to duck the question, though. Uh, I would think again that the general lesson is that there is need for international cooperation. Yeah. There's a need for use of international institutions. There's a need for great power engagement, and probably this is like uh, like the return of Napoleon. It's probably a, a need for action. Uh, is there a need to also enlist the the local uh, groups? Yes, there is. Right. You know, but you know, it's the dif- uh, you know, this calls for an understanding of what's going on in the and and uh, I'm probably going beyond my expertise and well, saying that's okay. You know,
0: well, there's also, I mean, Afghanistan. There's that the, the head of government that the U.S. kind of puts there, and the rest of the country, you know, outside of Kabul, is like. <sighs> They don't care. It doesn't seem to matter to them, and you know, as a result, there's not a lot of peace. And we've seen situations where the U.S. puts in place its, shall we say, puppet government, and it doesn't really work that well. Because well, you that's re- what
2: happened in Vietnam when we exactly. were younger. Isn't exactly. it? None of those regimes in South the yeah. Republic of South Vietnam uh, they just were very successful. Well, uh, what, um, uh, you know, this is the issue of intervention. When is intervention? Right. Uh, Going to work and and uh, when should states uh, intervene in smaller states? I mean the United Nations as you know has established something called the responsibility to protect that other powers have the right and duty to intervene when a sovereign government fails to protect its own people and
0: uh, it can be abused and sorry it can be abused, and sometimes it's not even used enough for sure, but it 's an interesting uh, dilemma and one one positive thing you write about, many positive things about the Congress of Vienna, uh, is that another benefit, uh, aside from ending the long wars, Congress had a profound cultural impact from the foods we eat to the music we enjoy. Things like the waltz, which was pretty daring at the time. I wonder about more of the cultural effects of of. Such a piece can uh initiate and and help you know th- that soft power for sure and 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 you know some of the benefits that that may come from i mean we look at art for example, the stealing of art and the power of art and the power of culture w- What about this from the Congress well, of I Vienna?
2: Think, i I mean I think you're right about that that was an example of soft power you can you can uh, you can go to Vienna today and still have the Congress torta, which is a a cake. That was uh, developed there, and and this debate among historians whether this very famous chef Karim was brought by Talleyrand to the conference. I always thought it was, but I've read some information recently that it, that he wasn't actually there. But it doesn't matter. Talleyrand and all these statesmen brought their best chefs and their best artists uh, to try to entice everyone, and they mm-hmm. uh, they used soft power and they used soft power to to promote their culture. Of course the United States still has been trying to promote democracy and maybe, you know, I you know, maybe that's sometimes that's a good idea and sometimes that isn't because it needs to be based on an understanding of what's going on in the local area. Now the the of eighteen twenty, the Congress statesmen still the same group, in eighteen twenty faced this issue of revolutions and they, they were divided on it. The, the, as I said, was a, there was a sort of moderate revolution, but it was still a revolution in Naples, and then in Piedmont, in Portugal and in Spain. So this was quite a few. and the Latin American colonies were still in revolt. The people like Metternich were very paranoid, and they saw all of this as the specter of the French Revolution. So they decided they had to repress these regimes even if, the, even if what they set up was very moderate. So they came up with a formula, and I was looking at this formula, and I was thinking, this is interesting. If we tried to apply it today, so this is what the formula was: when should you intervene? Yeah, you should. uh, They said intervention is justified when three conditions are there, and the first, I don't think we would agree with, but the first is that a state was established by revolution. Mm -hmm. The second that it threatened other nearby states, and the third, and this is very interesting, even at this time that they thought this that. Intervention was justified when the great powers were in a realistic position to exercise their action effectively. Uh, even though this was uh, applied in a very reactionary sense, it's interesting, uh, you know, I wonder how we would apply those three criteria today. A state was established by revolution. This is from the, the Tropow Protocol, the preliminary protocol at Tropau in November 1820. Uh, and as I say, just to repeat that for a minute, a state was established by revolution interventions justified when that state threatens other states clearly ISIS does yeah. and thirdly uh just uh, intervention is justified when the powers are in a po- realistic position to exercise action effectively so and, mm. um, you know so
0: a lot of uh terms that need definition they there yeah
2: intervene effectively in ISIS i i'm sure that they could could they intervene effectively in the ukraine i'm not as sure Right.
0: Um, well, but there, there were so many things that came out of this little known by most of us, uh, Congress of Vienna in 1815. And, and one of them was, as you mentioned, the navigation of the Rhine, which was a big deal, allowing all European countries free navigation. Another thing was, uh, you know, religious toleration, abol- abolition of the slave trade, and it started really making a difference toward human rights, correct? And it's still going on.
2: It did. did. There's there's quite a lot of historical literature now about that. And uh, you could say that that's should be, you know, uh, of course, human rights also go back to the French Revolution and the Declaration Mm -hmm. of the Rights of Man and the Citizen. And, of course, Americans had, well, the Bill of Rights, so, But the idea of making these things international and then having right. – uh, you can't have international rights if you don't have some mechanisms for international supervision. So this is especially the abolition of the slave trade. I mean, again, it got caught up in great power politics. The British wanted to use their sea power, and they, what they wanted to do was to have the right to search ships to look for slaves. Illicit slaves. And of course, as you know from the War of 1812, which is just, you know, fought a few years before, uh, the Americans and other powers were always suspicious of British claims to yeah. board their ships. Yes, of the Tsar in 1818, at uh, the Congress of Aix-la-Chapelle, came up with a different proposal, which was to create an international agency that would patrol the Atlantic between Africa and the Americas and then board these ships to look for illicit slaves. But The point is that they were, they were, the point is what you were saying. They were talking about ways of enforcing international norms and human rights. And that's, that's pretty amazing.
0: And it's been a long, slow struggle, that's for sure. We're still uh, moving in that direction, as Martin Luther King so hopefully mentioned. Thank you so much for being with us, Mark Jarrett. Very informative. People want to follow uh, what you've done and and uh, have any uh, discussions with you. Anything uh, you can suggest on that Internet thing? Um, I would,
2: uh, well, I, well uh, first there is the article that you were talking about, which is, saying, uh, which is time.com, 10 Things You Didn't Know About the Congress of Vienna That Influence Us Today. And there's the article I mentioned in History Today, which is a British journal, Uh on the Congress of Vienna and the post-crisis. But the most important would be the books. I I guess I'll have to give a plug to my book. Oh, sure. If that's okay. Absolutely. That's called The Congress of Vienna and its Legacy. It's my name, Mark Jarrett, J-A-R-R-E-T-T, and you can get it online at Uh Amazon.com or at com
0: Or your local bookstore, of course.
2: Or your local bookstore.
0: Thank you so much. Very, very interesting. We can learn from history. It's anything but simple. Mark Jarrett, thank you. Thank you and we'll see if peace may be possible we still keep having this issue of thrusting lead into the flesh of others but perhaps we can learn important lessons from history as to how to make real peace thanks for listening
1: the day is blue there's nothing to do but watch the sad review of life going.